the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after four o'clock is the time. James Blind is engineering and producing today's program. Later in the five o'clock hour, we're going to talk with Dr. Ramona. Ramona Probasco is the author of Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship from Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. She's a, a PhD. She's also a survivor, rather an overcomer. And we're going to talk with her about this uh, very helpful volume for those who suffer and those who care about them. So that's coming up later in the five o'clock hour. Taking a look at some of the developing news stories, investigators say they have uh, recovered human remains and the flight data recorder from the plane that an airline employee stole from a Seattle airport and crashed in on an island in nearby Puget Sound last Friday. And the White House has accused former reality star and ex-Trump aide Omarosa of having disagreed a rather uh, disregard for national security after she released a purported secret recording of Chief of Staff John Kelly allegedly threatening her. Attorney General Jeff Sessions and Massachusetts police officials have slammed Senator Elizabeth Warren for calling the criminal justice system racist. And the fraud trial of ex-Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort resumed today and ended today. Prosecutors uh, could rest their case and did. Clashes between hundreds of uh, counter-protesters, including Antifa and white nationalist demonstrators and police, marked uh, Unite the Right March in Washington, D.C. on Sunday. And another bloody string of uh, shootings rocked Chicago this weekend, leaving one dead and at least 27 wounded. Potential clues in the fatal theft of the SeaTac plane. Uh, federal officials announced last uh, late Sunday, rather, that they have recovered the flight data recorder. Uh, of the um, plane that was crashed into a small island in Puget Sound. The FBI recovered that uh, voice recorder from the aircraft, and the National Transportation Security Board is processing the data. The Pierce County Medical Examiner's Office is in possession of the remains, and the plane is located and considered highly fragmented. Richard Russell, who stole the plane last Friday, is presumed dead. Authorities I don't know why he took the plane, but he could be heard on audio recordings telling air traffic uh, controllers that he is just a broken guy. His family says it's clear he didn't mean to harm anyone. He made that clear during the uh, the back and forth conversation, um, but he uh, apparently uh, ended his own life purposely. And Omarosa recorded um, uh, recording rather has raised some security concerns. Uh, Omarosa Manigault Newman, the ex-reality star and former Trump aide who was, uh, has since accused the president of racism on Sunday, released what she claimed was a secret recording of White House Chief of Staff John Kelly threatening her in the White House Situation Room. I've heard the recording. Threatening is probably not the word I would have applied. However, White House officials pushed back immediately, saying Manigault Newman's termination for alleged ethical violations was handled appropriately and charging that she would have flagrantly violated security protocols by taping Kelly in the highly secured room in the basement of the West Wing. The very idea a staff member would sneak a recording device into the White House situation room, which is supposed to be one of the most secure 
uh, rooms in the in the country shows a blatant disregard of our national security and then to brag about it on national television further proves the lack of character and integrity of this disgruntled former White House employee. That's a quote from White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders uh, on Sunday evening. Well, in the recording, Kelly purportedly calls on Manigault uh, Newman's friendly departure from the administration without any difficulty in the future relative to your reputation. According to the tape, Kelly continued by saying that things could get uh, ugly for her and that she was open to uh, some legal action for conduct that would merit a court-martial if she were in the military. Still, the possibility that Manigault Newman had managed to record a conversation in the White House's high-tech situation room, which is the nerve center for sensitive government military operations, alarmed analysts. And Attorney General Jeff Sessions and top public, uh, rather police officials in Massachusetts have accused Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren of insulting rank and file officers when she said the criminal justice system was racist front to back earlier this month. Warren made the remark on the third of this month at Dillard University, a historically black college. In response, Yarmouth Police Chief Frank Fredrickson called Warren's comments an insult to the hardworking men and women of the Yarmouth Police Department, as well as other local, state and federal law enforcement agencies who are part of the criminal justice system. Attorney General Jeff Sessions also called out Warren during a speech in Georgia on Thursday, calling her statement a slander of every law officer and every prosecutor in America. And testimony in the uh, bank fraud and tax evasion trial of former Trump campaign manager Paul Manafort resumed today. Special counsel Robert Mueller's prosecutors say they expected to rest the case, which they did. Um, On Friday, Manafort's trial was delayed for hours without explanation after the judge huddled with his bailiff and attorneys for both sides. The U.S. District Judge T.S. Ellis III didn't acknowledge the delay, but after calling the recess, he left the courtroom heading toward the jury room. He also repeatedly reminded the jury not to discuss the case at all. Manafort's defense is not required to say whether they will call any witness until after the government rests. Well, prosecutors did rest their case against Manafort, the former Trump campaign chairman accused of bank fraud and tax fraud in a case brought by special counsel Robert Mueller. After a day of testimony from a bank executive, prosecutors announced the court the government rests. Manafort is facing tax evasion, bank fraud charges after being accused of hiding a significant percentage of income earned from his Ukrainian work from the IRS. He's also been accused of fraudulently obtaining millions from uh, in bank loans, rather, including while he was working on the Trump campaign. And hundreds of counter protesters, including Antifa, confronted a group of white nationalist demonstrators on Sunday at the so-called Unite the Right to march toward the White House. And many pushed back as officers tried to clear the area in the evening Triggering scuffles, a passing thunderstorm forced the far-right demonstrators to break down their rally stage in Lafayette Park near the White House prematurely. But as police escorted them from the area, reports of Antifa resistance emerged. Some 200 anti-fascists, many of them fascists, uh, wearing black masks, confronted police about a half mile from the White House as officers shoved them back, the Associated Press reported. And Chicago saw a new burst of violence this weekend with a string of shootings that killed at least one woman, killed Uh, and wounded uh, some 27 others. Still, the numbers were down from the previous weekend when a burst of gun violence left at least 11 people dead and around 70 wounded. After last weekend, I mean, it's sad when 27 wounded and one dead is an improvement, but after last week's uh, frustratingly high violence, police superintendent Eddie Johnson said 400 additional officers already were patrolling the areas on the west and south sides where uh, most of the shootings unfolded. Another 200 were said to be added to affected neighborhoods by the weekend. 
And on this day in 1981, in a ceremony at his California ranch, President Ronald Reagan signs an historic package of tax and budget reductions. On this day in 1961, East Germany seals off the border between Berlin's eastern and western sectors before building a wall that would divide the city for the next 28 years. And on this day in 1942, Walt Disney's animated feature, Bambi, had its U.S. premiere at Radio City Music Hall in New York, five days after its world premiere in London. It ended, of course, with Bambi's mother. She didn't make it. Well, there's a lot of discussion back and forth as to whether or not the president should testify before uh, Robert Mueller. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit about uh, whether or not there really is a perjury trap, which his uh, legal counsel is suggesting should prevent him from going before Mueller or any of his operatives. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're back 20 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, FBI official Peter Strzok, who played a lead role in both the Russian meddling and Hillary Clinton email probes, but became a political lightning rod after the revelation of anti-Trump text messages, has been fired. Strzok's attorney uh, said in a statement today that his client, a 21-year FBI veteran, was fired Friday afternoon, claiming that uh, this departure is a, a departure, rather, from standard practice and politically motivated. Uh, he said Bureau D- uh, Deputy Director David Bowich uh, overruled the FBI's Office of Professional Responsibility to remove him. This decision should be deeply troubling to all Americans, the attorney said. Well, President Trump and his allies for months, though, have hammered the former FBI agent and cast him as a poster child for anti-Trump bias within the Bureau and Justice Department. Reacting to the firing, the president tweeted, finally, while asking whether the Russia case will now be dropped, Agent Peter Strzok. And by the way, the answer to that we all know is no. Agent Peter Strzok was just fired from the FBI. Finally, the last of bad players in the FBI and DOJ gets longer and longer based on the fact that Strzok was in charge of the witch hunt. Will, be, will it be dropped? It is a total hoax. No collusion, no obstruction. I just fight back. Again, a tweet from the president. The president over the weekend had tweeted that Strzok and others have badly damaged the FBI's reputation, referring to them as clowns and losers. Probably would have chosen different words. But Strzok was uh, removed from the special counsel probe last year after the discovery that he exchanged anti-Trump and other politically charged messages with colleagues, with a colleague and lover, Lisa Page, on FBI Um, instruments. Well, in June, he was then escorted from his FBI office and lost his security clearance amid the release of the scathing DOJ Inspector General's report that largely dealt with the DOJ and FBI's handling of the investigation into Clinton's private email server, but uncovered messages that appeared to mix political opinion with discussions about that probe, namely between Strzok and Page. Well, the IG, the Inspector General, ultimately found no evidence that the bias among several FBI agents impacted prosecutorial decisions in 
in the Clinton email probe. But Republicans have repeatedly raised concerns that anti-Trump bias played a role in the start of the investigation into Russian meddling and potential collusion with Trump associates in 2016. One struck text in particular vowed to stop Trump from becoming president. In an explosive congressional hearing last month, Strzok sought to clear his name and address the many controversial messages. He claimed his personal opinions did not affect his work, but Republicans tore into the FBI official with the House Oversight Committee Chairman Trey Gowdy saying he exhibited textbook textbook bias. Trump's allies cheered the former agent's termination uh, today. And it's a legitimate reason for the president to decline to be interviewed. That's what Andrew McCarthy suggests, that there is, in fact, such a thing as a perjury uh, trap with regard to the president uh, sitting down before the Mueller investigators uh, in order to answer their questions. Well, studies will someday be done on the deleterious effect Donald Trump has had on the brains of people who loathe him. It drives them to say things that are so palpably foolish as some of the president's own doozies. This week's winner, there is no such thing as a perjury trap. Well, Andrew McCarthy says this, because some of the people making this nonsensical claim are very smart, let's stipulate that the heated moment we find ourselves in is driven by politics, not law or logic. And he writes that special counsel Robert Mueller wants to interview President Trump. President Trump's legal team is taking the public position that although the president wants bigly to answer Mueller's questions, the lawyers are discouraging this because it could be a perjury trap. That is, Mueller's prosecutors could be plotting to trip the president up, to dazzle him into saying something inaccurate that could be grist for a false statement prosecution. Of course, this drives Trump's antagonists to distraction. They point out that the president says many things that are not just inaccurate, but knowingly false in maintaining that there are no perjury traps. What they are really arguing is that Trump doesn't um, need to be trapped into perjury, that his lawyers claim about Mueller's treacherousness are a smokescreen to hide their real worry vis-a-vis that the president will lie in an interview because that's what the president does. Well, if that is what they think, then that is what they should say. It's perfectly coherent position, especially if one is predisposed to believe that Trump is incorrigible and that he has conspired with the Russians to seal the election, then obstructed the FBI in order to cover it up. But it's just silly to claim that perjury traps do not exist. It is an iteration of the overreaching illogic that takes hold when a Republican, especially the incumbent Republican, occupies the White House. To wit, presidents can be irredeemable. Uh, reprobates, but prosecutors and investigators are pure as the driven snow, and to question their scruples is to undermine the rule of law itself. Let's take the scruples out of it for a second. Hypothetically, let's assume a world in which everybody acts in good faith. The flaw in the there's no perjury traps nostrum is that it takes two to tangle. For charging purposes, the witness who answers the question does not get to decide whether they have answered truthfully. That is up to the prosecutor who asked the questions. The theme the anti-Trump camp is pushing, again, a sweet-sounding political claim that defies real-world experience, is that an honest person has nothing to fear from a prosecutor. If you simply answer the questions truthfully, there is no possibility of a false statement charge. But see, for charging purposes... Uh, the witness who answers the question does not get to decide whether they have been answering answered truthfully. That is up to the prosecutor who asked the questions. The honest person can make his best effort to provide truthful, accurate, and complete responses, but the in- interrogator's evaluation, right or wrong, determines whether those responses warrant a prosecution. Remember, we are now uh, uh, we are for now assuming. Um, 
everyone's bona fides, that witnesses, uh, that a witness is being honest, that the prosecutor is not trying to dupe the witness into an inaccurate statement. Even so, most interrogations are not confined to simplicity. And investigations, even straightforward fact pattern, uh, fact patterns rather, implicate the operation of the witness's mind, the witness's attention span, the witness's capacity to perceive, recall, relate pertinent details. It is the rare interview that is just a matter of the prosecutor asking, What's two plus two? The Mueller investigation itself abounds with examples of this. Former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn was questioned about his conversations with Russian Ambassador uh, Kislyak. Um, there were some discrepancies between Flynn's account of the discussion and the FBI's understanding of them. We'll, well, we'll leave it at that for now. Did that necessarily mean Flynn lied? Well, of course not. To take the most obvious possibility, Flynn could have had an innocent failure of recollection. It happens to all of us. It would happen to you if you tried to describe this um, column to someone without having a copy in your hand. Well, the investigators and prosecutors had to weigh whether Flynn's discrepancies were honest mistakes or conscious misstatements. It appears that the first set of investigators gave him the benefit of the doubt, but Mueller's team drew the opposite conclusion. Yes, Flynn ultimately pled guilty, but when highly experienced investigators assess the same basic facts differently, the matter cannot be black and white. Well, I won't uh, go on from there, but uh, it does raise the question of, uh, whether or not there is a perjury trap, if the the concept is a legitimate one, and if it's it merits um, a consideration of the legal team for President Trump. By the way, uh, Rudy Giuliani has announced that unless uh, the testimony takes place or the questioning takes place before the first of September, President Trump will not be available uh, to the Mueller team, and the whole thing should be wrapped up by the end of this month, the start of uh, the start of September. Well, with um, President Trump's nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the U.S. Supreme Court, the abortion debate once again has returned to the national spotlight. Nowhere is this more apparent than in Alabama and in West Virginia, two states where voters will decide this fall on ballot measures asking whether to amend their constitutions to do away with any abortion protections. If it's passed, the measure would not immediately impact state policy, but would ensure their constituents can't be used to allow abortions. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, If the landmark 1973 Supreme Court uh, decision in Roe versus Wade were to be overturned, the constitutions from those states could not uh, permit it. Well, that's far from a sure thing, but the November ballot initiatives in these two socially conservative states are being closely watched as a bellwether for how other states might handle the abortion issue in that scenario. It's the beginning of a trend, says Mary Zeigler. She's a professor at Florida State University College of uh, Law and the author of Rights to Privacy, How Americans Re imagine Roe versus Wade and why we have forgotten. Uh, If Roe versus Wade is eventually overturned, there will be some ugly state-by-state battles. In Alabama, state lawmakers approved the Republican-led measure for the ballot uh, back in April. We want to make sure that that at a state level, if Roe versus Wade is overturned, that the Alabama Constitution cannot be used as a mechanism by which to claim that there is a right to abortion. According to the language on that measure, Alabama voters will be asked to either support or oppose the amendment to make the state policy to recognize and support the sanctity of unborn life and the rights of unborn children, including the right to life and to state that no provisions of the Constitution provides a right to an abortion or require funding of abortion. Alabama, which is one of 43 states that ban abortion beginning at a certain stage of pregnancy, has already seen a drastic drop in the number of abortions carried out in the last decade. The number fell 
41 percent from 2005 to 2016, according to the state's Center for Health Statistics. If the measure passes, Alabama would be the third state to enshrine the right to life in its state constitution following Missouri and Utah. A similar measure entitled the No Constitutional Right to Abortion Amendment will appear on November's ballot in West Virginia after more than two-thirds of the state House of Delegates voted uh, in March in favor of it. And while not as sweeping as Alabama's measure, voters in West Virginia will be asked whether the following sentence should be added to the state constitution. Nothing in this constitution secures or protects the right to abortion or requires the funding of abortion. Some measures to watch this um, midterm election. 31 minutes after four o'clock is the time you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're back 35 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we're going to talk with uh, Ramona Tabasco, she's a Dr. Ramona, an author of Healing Well and Living Free from Abusive Relationships from Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. She is all of those things, a former victim and a current overcomer. She'll tell you her story as well as what she has learned as a professional, as a Ph.D. in psychiatry. So she'll join us in the five o'clock hour. Well, since the Trump administration's Department of Health and Human Services proposed a rule to update compliance with legal requirements of the Title X Family Planning Program, the move has received, um, well, unwarranted pushback from pro-abortion advocates uh, who favor abortion under every circumstance. The liberal media have predicted the rule would spell doomsday for women's health. Title X is a grant program, for those who don't know, originally authorized in the 70s, that's administered by the Office of Population Affairs at Health and Human Services. State health departments and private nonprofits are both eligible to apply for grants under Title X. Well, the proposed rule change, which the Trump administration proposed back in May, modifies an existing requirement of Title X family planning grants in several ways. Well, these include requiring recipients to maintain physical and financial separation from abortion facilities and prohibiting Title X projects from referring to abortion. They would be able, however, to provide a list of licensed, qualified, comprehensive health service providers, including those that provide abortion. While pro-abortionists are up in arms about the possibility of restricting funds to the nation's most prominent abortion provider, Planned Parenthood, little attention is being paid to a key part of that proposed rule. A new regulation that ensures protection for women and children who have experienced sexual abuse or molestation, incest, rape, intimate uh, partner violence, and human trafficking. Now, the proposed rule would require Title X grant recipients to comply with state and local reporting laws, require annual training for staff in Title X clinics, ensure that they have a a site-specific protocol in place to protect victims and provide counseling to minors on how to resist attempts to coerce them into to sexual activity. Now, we know that there has been an, ex- an expose, if you will, of uh, Planned Parenthood covering um, that kind of sex abuse up in the past. Well, the regulation rightly comes after years of reported cases of uh, Planned, Parenthood, uh, Planned Parenthood's neglecting to notify the proper authorities about cases of abuse. In 2004, for example, a 16-year-old girl who was being uh, sexually abused by her father was taken to a Planned Parenthood facility in Ohio to have an abortion where she reported the abuse to the staff. Planned Parenthood refused to report the abuse to authorities. It later settled with the victim in a lawsuit. In December of 2013, 
2018, a Planned Parenthood counselor in Arizona intentionally coded a sexual assault as a consensual encounter, explaining that the victim victim that uh, reported uh, would be too much of a hassle. Huh. Live Action, the pro-life group uh, that released an entire report documenting Planned Parenthood's longstanding failure to report child sex abuse, uh, has come under fire. Rather than retain staff to identify traffickers and trafficking victims, Planned Parenthood is instead opted to retain staff to identify undercover journalists investigating the abortion giant. Well, this disturbing uh, display of uh, skewed priorities is particularly troubling in light of a recent study by the Loyola University Chicago Beasley's Institute for Health, Law and Policy, uh, which found that Planned Parenthood was one of the most visited care providers for sex trafficking victims, second only to emergency rooms. Sex traffickers often have uh, complete control over their victims and encounters with health professionals at establishments such as Planned Parenthood may be the only opportunity for victim identification and intervention. In the era of the Me Too movement and with the rise of sex trafficking, it's puzzling that groups that claim to protect women's rights are blatantly ignoring this injustice and the Trump administration's uh, willingness to to address it simply because it doesn't fall in line with its political agenda. Well, articles on Slate and the Huffington Post have bashed the administration's proposed rule as a harmful to women, uh, but neither mention the parts of the rule that protect women and children from sexual abuse. And while all health establishments should follow mandatory reporting laws, it's especially important that federal dollars do not go to institutions that willingly refuse to report cases of sexual abuse that they are uh, made aware of. Well, you may have missed it, but more than a dozen Oregonians attended a Justice for Life rally at the Oregon State Capitol on Saturday in support of the president's uh, Supreme Court nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. The rally in Salem was part of a series of rallies around the country hosted by Students for Life of America, a youth organization dedicated to uh, pro-life causes. Uh, in their lifetime and to put an end to abortion. Well, the organization, which considers itself a post-Roe organization, also provides education on abortion and promotes student leadership at a local and national level. Rallies around the nation were either organized by a regional coordinator or student leaders. Well, Nicole Bentz, the Pacific Northwest Regional Director for Students for Life of America, and the Salem Rally organizers said the purpose of the event on Saturday was to show Oregon Senators Ron Wyden and Jeff Merkley that there is support for Kavanaugh in the state. We're organizing this rally to call Judge Kavanaugh to be confirmed because he is a solid court nominee. Bence went on to say she's 24 from Corvallis. He has a strong record on religious liberty, free speech, and protecting the preborn. Kavanaugh is the president's second Supreme Court nominee following Justice Neil Gorsuch, who was confirmed in 2017. Kavanaugh's confirmation could change the direction of the court to a more conservative side for decades. Uh, Bent spoke at a rally along with Jessica Stanton, a public affairs official from Oregon Right to Life, and Marco Sanchez, a student leader for Students for Life America. After Justice Neil Gorsuch was placed on the Supreme Court, we could only dream of another opportunity uh, to have such major influence for the pro-life movement, Stanton said while speaking, we must show our support to raise our voices for our U.S. senators to confirm the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. Well, that's not going to happen, but I admire young people who are willing to stand up and publicly call for that very thing. And I received an email from Lois Anderson, the executive director of Oregon Right to Life, pointing out that they had an opportunity to have a sneak peek screening in February of the uh, soon to be released movie on the Philadelphia abortionist Kermit Gosnell. 
Um, he was caught and sentenced to prison. It's coming to theaters on October the 12th. And they're trying to solicit as many people as possible to see the film in its first um, weekend uh, so that the film gains a wider uh, distribution. If you're interested in going to see that film, you can put um, you can uh, put Oregon Right to Life uh, or at least let them know that you plan to attend. They also want to, us to know that um, uh, this makes a difference in terms of how a film is marketed around the country. So, again, it's coming to theaters on October 12th, and they're encouraging pro-life people who are interested in seeing it. I know James and I had a conversation earlier today about whether or not we were interested uh, in seeing it, and I'm not quite sure that either of us is. We know the story of Hermit Gosnell, and it's an important one. Most people don't have any idea, and so it is important that the story uh, is made known. Uh, I'm just not sure I'm prepared to uh, prepared to watch it. But in the interest of uh, truth and spreading that story, it's an important one to uh, to consider. A couple of things before we go to break. You have uh, through tomorrow. August the 14th to take advantage of uh, the $5 per ticket discount on tickets to the singing Christmas tree that ends on Wednesday, the 15th. Uh, As you might recall in my conversation with Wes Walterman uh, a few days ago, he mentioned that uh, in response to a survey that they've done uh, for uh, among people who have attended the tree, one of the things that they uh, asked for was a reduced price on the tickets. And so across the board, they have reduced the price of tickets to the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. That's on every level. In addition to that, if you purchase your tickets during this uh, preseason uh, sale, you can enjoy $5 off the price of every ticket you purchase, any performance, any seat, saving even further. Now, the performance dates are November 23rd through December 2nd. Nine performances, including five matinees. You can order online or you can uh, call 503-557-8733. That's singingchristmastree.org. Singingchristmastree.org for more information and to purchase your tickets. Also, Fish Fest is coming up. That's uh, coming up this Saturday. So go to Fish Fest, uh, PDX. Dot com for more information on that. Also, later this, um, or I should say the next hour, we're going to talk with Ramona Probasco. Dr. Ramona is the author of Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship from Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. It is, uh, in, in many ways, her story, being ha- having been a victim, a survivor, and now an overcomer. She is now a professional that helps others uh, walk through that very difficult journey and in her book offers very practical advice on uh, what to do, what to avoid, uh, and how to approach um, uh, that very troubling issue. And for those who care about those who are being abused, uh, there's great advice there as well. She'll be joining us in the 5 o'clock hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. Forty-nine minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, there's a short slate of hot button issues on the November ballot here in the state of Oregon: abortion, immigration, taxes, and housing are 
those hot-button issues that will go before voters as ballot measures in the November 6th general election. Monday was the deadline for the Secretary of State to certify an initiative in time for the general election. From an original crop of some 45 proposed initiatives, just four ran the legal and logistical gauntlet to garner uh, signatures, litigate battle titles, and thread through the bureaucratic maze to the November ballot, which says something about Uh, those that actually made it. A fifth, Measure 102, was placed on the ballot by the legislature. Well, the five ballot measures this year are a sharp drop from the record 26 in November of 2000, you might recall. It's the smallest number of ballot measures in a general election since November of 1964, according to the Oregon Blue Book, the state's official almanac. Well, barring additional legal challenges, here are the five that uh, will be on the ballot and who's leading the support and opposition. Measure 102 has to do with housing. It's the only measure put on the ballot by the legislature, and it would allow municipal bonds to be used to finance the construction of affordable housing with private and nonprofit groups. It would require local voter approval and annual performance audits while placing limits on the costs the project's uh, cost of the projects. Advocates say it could ease the low-cost housing shortage in Oregon. Um, In favor of it, all Democrats and most Republicans in the legislature, Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler, advocacy groups, Affordable Housing for Oregon and Defend Oregon, against no organized public opposition as of yet. The resolution creating the referral to voters passed the House unanimously and the Senate 24 to 5. Now, I would hope that if they're building affordable housing, they would also include sufficient parking to accommodate those residents. Measure 103, it's the subject of taxes. Uh, With a rallying cry, yes, keep our groceries tax-free, a coalition of supermarkets and business groups want to enshrine in the Constitution a prohibition on taxing most foods. So-called syntax substances, alcohol, marijuana, and tobacco were not included in the measure. The initiative would also bar an increase in the state's corporate minimum tax for grocers, which could have a long-term impact on state revenue. For it, supermarkets and grocery seller associations. Kroger has contributed some $800,000 so far. Costco, which is based in Seattle, contributed $555,000. Phoenix-based Albertson Safeway gave $800,000 to the committee to get the initiative on the ballot and $200,000 to the new political action committee to pass it. Against it, vote no on 103. A new pack launched on the 7th of this month. Then there's Measure 104. Legislative voting change. Well, the initiative would broaden the definition of which bill requires a three-fifths supermajority approval in the House and Senate. Democrats are currently one vote short of a supermajority in both House and the Senate. In the two recent regular sessions, Democrats had to find at least one Republican vote to pass tax legislation. Republicans say Democrats allowed some bills to be considered with just a majority vote that should have required a supermajority. The measure would effectively extend the supermajority requirement to various fees and attempts to roll back tax breaks. In favor of it, Priority Oregon, a business-oriented group organized by John Davis, a former Republican House member, and a Portland-based partner of Lynch, Conger, McLean, a Bend law firm. One of the firm's other partners, Republican House Minority Leader Mike McLean, a Republican out of Powell Butte, has been an outspoken critic of what he says are Democratic attempts to circumvent the supermajority rules. Against it, Our Oregon, a political group that advocates for families, schools and workers' rights, Democratic leaders in the legislature are also opposed. Then there's Measure 105, touching on immigration. The ballot measure would repeal a 30-year-old law that limits state and local officials from aiding federal officials who are seeking information on Oregon residents merely on the basis of whether or not they are in the United States legally. 
Advocates of the measure say that there should be cooperation with federal officials on identifying illegal immigrants. Opponents say current law ensures that criminals who are illegal immigrants are turned over to federal officials and that without current law, there would be more racial profiling by law enforcement. In favor of it, and this is uh, against the sanctuary status of the state of Oregon, Representative Mike Nearman, a Republican out of Independence, is the lead chief petitioner. Repeal Oregon Sanctuary Law PAC, the Federation of American Immigration Reform, Oregonians for Immigration Reform. Proponents have raised about $300,000. Those are um, the individuals and organizations in favor of Measure 105. Opposing it, Oregonians United Against Profiling, American Civil Liberties Union, Oregon Education Association, National Immigration Law Center. Opponents have raised about $350,000. Then there's Measure 106, hard fought and ultimately won on abortion. The measure would block the use of public funds to pay for most abortions. Exceptions would be for when the procedure is medically necessary or required by federal law. The state spent an estimate $2 million over the past um, two years to provide abortions under the low-income Oregon health plan. In 2017, the legislature passed a law requiring insurers doing business in Oregon to provide abortions and other reproductive care services, including contraception, without charge to patients. Lawmakers also approved free abortions for women regardless of their immigration status. In favor of the measure, longtime pro-life activist Jeff Jimerson of Corvallis is the lead chief petitioner. Oregon Right to Life is supporting the measure. Uh, Oregonians, um, no, Oregon Life United as the main organization against it. No surprise there. No Cuts to Care is the umbrella for more than 20 groups opposing the measure. It includes the Oregon branches of the National Abortion Rights Action League, Planned Parenthood, American Civil Liberties Union, and the National Organization for Women. The AFL-CIO and Public Employee Labor Union, SEIU Local 503, are also involved. Defend Oregon is aiding the No campaign. So there you have it, the measures that you will have the opportunity to weigh in on on the November ballot. Vice President Mike Pence uh, promoted a proposed space command on Thursday as an idea whose time has come in comments at the Pentagon to unveil a few more details about the president's plan to create another military force, this one for uh, outer space and for it to be in operation by 2020. Mr. Trump's space dreams still have to go through a divided Congress to come true, but initially reluctant Pentagon officials have lined up behind the proposal and now say that they will do what they can to bring it to fruition. The time has come to write the next great chapter in the history of our armed forces to prepare for the next battlefield where America's best and bravest will be called to deter and defeat a new generation of threats to our people, to our nation. The vice president told an audience at the Pentagon, he called for Congress to allocate an additional $8 billion for space security systems over the next five years. Mr. Trump, for his part, posted on Twitter on Thursday, space force all the way. But that may be a tall order. The administration can't just create a space force on its own. It has to go through Congress where critics abound. Even Defense Secretary Jim Mattis, once a critic, uh, in a letter last year when Congress was considering a space corps, uh, Mr. Mattis said he did not want to add additional organizational and administrative tri- uh, tail to the military. He said a space corps would likely present a narrower and even more parochial uh, approach to space operations. But that was before the president abruptly announced in June that he wanted a space corps. On uh, Thursday, introducing Mr. Pence, Mr. Mattis said that space is becoming a contested warfighting domain. And we have to adapt to that reality. But does the United States need a space force? Well, um, 
Will the world's next big conflict be in outer space? And if so, what would a space core or space force do? Well, um, on the Heritage Explains podcast, Dean Chang, who's a senior research fellow in Heritage's uh, Davis uh, Institute for National Security and Foreign Policy, um, helped to break down the United States' need for a space force and what this new branch of military would do. He said it was an announcement that every Star Wars superfan dreamed about, and its news generated more memes than can be counted when it comes to defending America. It's not enough to merely have an American presence in space. We have to have American dominance in space. So important. Well, very uh, important um, uh, to consider what the uh, what the challenges are. In 2015, Russia actually combined their space force that manages their satellites and associated uh, tracking and control networks with their air force and aerospace and missile defense force to create what they now call their Russian aerospace forces. That same year, China engaged in a massive reorganization of their military, which saw the creation of the PLA Strategic Support Force, bringing their electronic networks, cyber and space warfare forces together into a single service. Shockingly, they both also have some basic abilities that we do not. Well, one of the things that the Chinese and Russians at this point can do that the United States can't is that it can also put an astronaut into space. At this point, ever since we retired the space shuttles, we have been hitching rides on the Russian rockets and Russian capsules, even up to the International Space Station. Um, uh, these abilities are important, we are being told, um, now and certainly for the future. Well, in peacetime, believe it or not, there's an even bigger set of issues that are being involved here. If you order something from Amazon and you want to track your package, that's GPS. If you use your credit card at the gas station pump, that's communication satellite and also GPS. So you have the ability, if you can interfere with satellite systems in peacetime, to affect almost every part of your daily life and a huge part of this country's economic system. Well, in the next uh, conflict, if it involves a major power or even a mid-sized power increasing, uh, it will have operations in space. And by the way, those operations in space, while we tend to focus on the, the really cool images of a kinetic anti-satellite weapon just colliding with and blowing uh, up into fragments, could also include cyber attacks where the satellite turns itself off, for example, and a lot of countries are developing that set of capabilities. So because a lot of people will have the ability to operate in space because of the importance of space to us, we need to be thinking about that set of capabilities that's encompassing encompassed rather by our space systems. For better or for worse, the only way we are going to do that at this point, it seems, is to have a service, a space force, if you will, whose job it is to think about this living, eating, breathing, sleeping space and thinking about what kinds of systems to acquire. And part of that, of course, is how to pay for it. And that, of course, will be the challenge moving forward. So while Star Wars is uh, quite a distance off, um, Protecting our capacities as they exist now, even in peacetime, is an important development um, that at least uh, some are suggesting a space core of a sort uh, would have the, uh, the wherewithal to oversee. All right, we've got news and traffic here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Next hour, we'll talk with Dr. Ramona, healing well and living free from an abuse <laughs> from an abusive relationship from victim to survivor to overcomer. We'll be back.
Well, welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blind is engineering today's program and producing as well. Later this hour, we're going to talk with uh, Ramona Probasco, also known as Dr. Ramona. She's the author of Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship, From Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. Uh, we'll, um, uh, we'll talk with her in our next segment. Also, I want to remind you that this Saturday is Fish Fest. Uh, you can uh, hear, of course, a, quite a lineup of uh, great bands and great music, but perhaps the most fun that you'll have over the whole um, the, the whole afternoon is having the opportunity to meet and see James Blend, who will be there managing. Now, do you have an opportunity, James, to circulate the uh, to circulate in the audience? Or are you pretty much on duty the whole time for Fish Pest? He's nodding. Apparently, I'm so on duty for Fish Fest, I don't hit the right buttons anymore here. <laughs> so what is your day like for Fish Fest? Uh, my day will start around 7 in the morning and end around midnight. Wow. So are you... Usually, I check the pedometer afterwards. I'm somewhere upwards north of 10 miles. That's incredible. Are you behind stage with the bands, or are you out circulating with the audience? What's your day? Uh, it, it varies. It really uh-huh. varies from point to point. I could be backstage. I could be up by the ticketing and somewhere in between. It's the mileage I put on. Yeah, yeah. So just keep your eyes open and heads up for James Blend as he'll be circulating the area. Uh, Fish Fest this year is featuring uh, newsboys, Jeremy Camp, Danny Gokey. You've got Tori Harper, Josh Wilson, and the uh, Unspoken is also performing. And comedian Dustin Nickerson, and he's going to be sort of tying everything together as the MZ for the day. Uh, this is uh, coming up this Saturday at Riverfront Park in Salem. For all the important details, you can go to Fish Fest Pete pdx.com. I think we clarified that that's uh, that's a good uh, address. Fishfestpdx.com. That's coming up this Saturday. And be sure to uh, look for James Blind and say hello. It's going to be a fun, fun day. Also, you have through the 14th. That's tomorrow. You have all day tomorrow, but uh, then it ends saving $5 per ticket in the presale pricing for the Portland Singing Christmas Tree. So the 15th, it's over. Through the day on uh, on Tuesday, you've got the opportunity to save $5 per ticket. And if you had the opportunity to hear my conversation with Wes Walterman a couple of days ago, he mentioned that they have reduced the prices all across the board on all of their tickets. So you... Um, Take that into account and the opportunity to save $5 off the price of your ticket, any performance, any seat through tomorrow, uh, then you know that you've got a great opportunity uh, to save nine performances, including five matinees beginning November the 23rd, ending December 2nd. Check it out at uh, the singing Christmas tree dot uh, dot com for more information, or you can uh, you can call the box office at 503-557-8733. Again, those discounts $5 per ticket uh, ends on Wednesday, but you have the opportunity tonight and through tomorrow. Well, as I've been mentioning, a Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge will be my guest on Wednesday. Now, you're probably familiar with Teen Challenge. Uh, they've been a fixture here in the Portland metro area for, and really across the country for many, many years. We're going to talk about the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge program as it exists today, ministering to men, women, and young people. Uh, it's an incredible program that is um, really picking up the slack for, for programs that have been less successful. Uh, they have a men and men's and women's program. They are 12-month residential programs. They understand that this is a significant commitment and investment, but 
they've seen positive results. Uh, their curriculum is a 12-month Bible-based program, and it allows them to uh, present uh, topics that expose, challenge, and direct men and women out of their addictions and into their recovery, earning a certificate of graduation. So this is a program that is intense, and it is effective. The uh, The application fee is about $500 uh, for those who participate in the program, and they're able to make some accommodations depending on need. But we are going to uh, come alongside uh, Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge to help underwrite some of the cost for individuals who need that program. Now, this is a, a program that is not co-ed, as some suspect. Their men's and women's campuses don't share facilities nor geographic proximity. They're committed to protecting students' spiritual progress. And it's not a medical facility. Um, they do help uh, adult and teens uh, who are um, suffering from addiction through their program to focus on establishing and restoring their relationship with Jesus Christ in order that the students can break the chains of bondage from addiction to drugs, to alcohol, from other life controlling issues. So this, as I mentioned, it's a, an intense program, but it is an effective program. The students take their recovery seriously. Some things they're not allowed uh, to do in the program um, are for their good. And you can find out more about that on their website. Now, the men's program, the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge, operates seven one-year residential recovery programs uh, for men over the age of 18. That's across the states of Oregon, Washington, and Alaska. And, of course, we'll be talking about programs in our area. And for women in the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge, they operate four one-year residential recovery programs for women over 18, uh, again, in Oregon, Washington, and Montana. And for a- adolescents, they currently offer recovery services focused on the unique needs of adolescents with a program for adolescent girls in Idaho. Well, it was February of... 1958, when the 26-year-old country preacher from rural Pennsylvania disrupted a highly publicized murder trial in New York City. David Wilkerson had made the eight-hour drive from his quiet mountain village to downtown Manhattan for a simple reason, to speak to the seven accused gang members about their salvation. In a grave attempt to share the love of God, he had rushed to the front of the courtroom at the close of the trial proceedings and pled publicly with the judge for permission to meet with these teenage defendants. And uh, pled uh, publicly. Well, news media were everywhere, and Wilkerson unwittingly made himself the source of headline news throughout New York City. The judge had been receiving death threats during the trial, and Wilkerson was almost uh, arrested as a, a presumed assailant. Well, the judge later uh, refused his request to see the boys and ordered him never to return to his courtroom. Well, today, the one-time rural preacher is known as the founder of the international drug rehabilitation program called Teen Challenge. That's one of the highest success rates anywhere in the world. And let me repeat that, because that's what we're going to be focusing on, one of the highest success rates anywhere in the world. Now, since its first center opened in New York in 1960, Teen Challenge has grown to nearly 250 centers in 48 states, over 1,000 centers in 95 countries. In Puerto Rico, the organization is building an AIDS hospital, the first of its kind. And Mr. Wilkerson also founded a global evangelistic ministry, World Challenge. The Pentecostal preacher remained what he was for over 40 years, a man dedicated to preaching the gospel in the heart of New York City. He pastored Times Square Church in Manhattan, which he founded in 1987 until his death in April of 2011. He made uh, more than the, the news back 
back in 1958, five months after his discouraging day in court. His compassion for teenage gangs and drug addicts made history. Well, a year later, he established the first Teen Challenge Center in one of the roughest areas in Brooklyn. Addicts and other troubled youth poured into the center and were delivered by God's power. One skeptical psychiatrist observing the program remarked, it seemed to me you're just using Jesus as a crutch. Then give me two of them, a resident of the center responded. What is the program? The psychiatrist asked. God in the morning, Jesus in the afternoon, the Holy Ghost at night, the resident replied. Well, the good news spread quickly, and Wilkerson was uh, deluged with pleas for help with drug problems from all over the country. And this is uh, many, many years ago. It was a problem then. I raised funds for the first 10 to 20 centers that started, he said, answering appeals uh, got uh, so demanding that he allowed the ministry to come under the the home mission department of the Assemblies of God. His brother uh, then took over the director of the center based on strong Christian principles. The program runs from six to 14 months, on average 12 months here. Residents come from the streets, detoxification facilities, hospitals, or jails. Some are referred by pastors and counselors or court-ordered into the treatment by judges. HIV-positive students are normally accepted. Teen Challenge teaches that the key to abstinence from substance abuse is a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And during the program on Wednesday, you're going to have an opportunity to hear many of their testimonies. And I will tell you, they are dramatic and they are moving, but they're nothing short of evidence of what we already know if we know the scriptures, that God has the desire and the power to uh, to uh, transform those who struggle. And so we're going to uh, give you an opportunity certainly to learn more, but we're also going to ask you to come along Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge to help them underwrite individuals who otherwise might not be able to make it through to or through the program. So that's uh, going to be our efforts on Wednesday, and we're looking forward uh, to that. And again, uh, I think the most compelling thing you're going to hear during that program, and we're going to focus on the uh, effort all day long here on KPDQ, will be the testimonies of men and women uh, who have gone through this program and not only have been have recovered and are no longer addicts of whatever um, the drug or alcohol of choice might have been, but they have uh, come to know Jesus Christ in a significant uh, and meaningful way. So we're looking forward to that on Wednesday and hope you will join us. Again, Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge. You can check them out online if you'd like to learn more before our uh, program on Wednesday. Coming up, we're going to talk with Dr. Ramona. Uh, Ramona Probasco is the author of Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship, From Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. That's next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, it's hard to imagine someone with a doctorate, a flourishing counseling practice, to have hidden in a different state with her children, worn sunglasses on a rainy day to hide her, uh, her uh, appearance at a child's uh, field trip, uh, to use turtlenecks to hide choke marks. But that is precisely the case for Dr. Ramona. 
We're going to talk a bit about her story and perhaps some of yours. One in four women in the United States will experience domestic violence in her lifetime. Dr. Ramona's horrible but triumphant personal story, her gentle guidance, along with her 20 years of experience as a licensed marriage and family therapist, brings hope to victims and their loved ones that the cycle of abuse can be stopped and the trauma healed. Abuse breaks the spirit and always leaves wreckage in its wake. But this does not have to be the end of the story. Dr. Ramona provides a clear path that readers can follow to move from victim to survivor to overcomer. In fact, the title of her book, Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship, From Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. Well, Dr. Ramona Probasco holds a doctorate in psychology and has conducted extensive research in the area of domestic violence. She is a marriage and family therapist, a certified domestic violence counselor and a nationally certified counselor. She's been in private practice for over 20 years. Dr. Ramona is an expert and sought after speaker on domestic violence and how to authentically heal well from the trauma it causes. As a personal overcomer of domestic violence, she offers guidance and insight to others based on both her clinical experience and her own experience of moving from victim to survivor to overcomer. She's the mother of three incredible adult children, two wonderful adult uh, children through remarriage, and she now thoroughly enjoys being the wife of a husband who absolutely cherishes her. Joining us, Dr. Ramona Probasco, again, the book Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me, Georgine. I really appreciate it. This is a difficult subject to discuss for a variety of reasons, um, but it's one that absolutely must be brought into the light if we're ever going to see a future in which uh, this kind of abuse is no longer tolerated by those who are suffering at the hands of it, those who are perpetrators, and those of us who care about uh, about uh, uh, folks in our lives. So I appreciate your uh, your work and for taking the time to provide a resource to help those who have been victims to move to overcomer. And you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more, Georgine. The fact that how important it is that we start to talk about violence, intimate partner violence that's happening both within the church and outside of the church. So I applaud you and your program for taking time to chat with me today. Well, let's talk about this victim abuse. Uh, we hear statistics um, that this is this prevalent, but it's very difficult for us to imagine that it's actually happening to someone we know. Uh, if they haven't told us face to face that this is, uh, in fact, their experience, how widespread is it? Let's, let's focus uh, at least first on those within the church and how generally does the church respond when made aware? Mm -hmm. Well, actually, when I was completing my doctorate, I studied as part of my dissertation research domestic violence within faith-based relationships. I studied 500 women anonymously with a 50-question survey along with 30 churches, megachurches across the U.S. And what I found, Georgine, is that what is happening outside the church statistically regarding the prevalence rates of domestic violence is happening within the families of faith. So the, the statistically, it is similar both inside and outside of the church. In terms of um, how it's handled once discovered in the church, is there any difference in the way it's regarded within the church as opposed to those outside the church? For example, if a pastor is told by a parishioner that my husband is, uh, is physically harming me and or the children, um, is there a marked difference in the way the church approaches that kind of uh, uh, scenario? Well, I guess it really depends on the pastor. In my particular situation, we were doing couples counseling, which I don't advise. And at the time, I wasn't being honest. Of course, my prior spouse wasn't. 
uh, owning what was happening. And so he had limited information to work with. I say that to say that pastors are responsible, though, to get properly educated so that they know how to assess. They know what questions to ask. They know to not even attempt couples counseling once it's discovered that there is abuse, regardless if it's physical or verbal or emotional, but they don't attempt to counsel them together. So what can happen is that pastors, either well-meaning or not, can advise the individual to pray harder, to, you know, believe God more, to have more faith, to submit You know, they can misuse scripture to try to rectify the situation, or they can approach it from a couple's issue and use misdiagnose and then use couples techniques, if you will, to try to help them improve their communication or learn how to handle conflict better. And this happens outside the church, too, Mm -hmm. because not all counselors are, are trained on this. And so even counselors will misdiagnose and then they mistreat. They, they don't they don't. provide the correct treatment plan, which is very, very dangerous. You mentioned that when you sought um, counsel from a pastor, uh, you were reluctant to provide all of the details. How common is that for women of faith in particular, that it, it somehow seems to suggest that you're less than for having to admit that this is a difficulty in your relationship, your marital relationship? Is there a reluctance among women of faith in particular uh, at admitting to the the extent to which abuse might be taking place? Yes, I do think there's propensity for that because there's the confusion, and I was I, I struggled with this for my, myself for years. There's confusion surrounding God's heart for victims and and God's um, heart for abuse and what He thinks about issues like this. And of course, divorce always plays into it. So. You know, the confusion around, if I just pray more, then I'll have a miracle. That's what I thought for many, many years. As a matter of fact, Georgiana, I have one story that I, uh, Georgina, I apologize. That's all right. A story that I'd like to share with people that uh, at one point I had read in the Old Testament where Samuel anointed Saul uh, to be king. And I thought, wow, you know, there must be something really significant in this uh, act of anointing someone with oil. So in the middle of the night, I got out of bed and I went to our kitchen pantry and I, and I grabbed the olive oil and I dipped my finger in and I went back to our room and I drew a little cross on Ben's shoulder. And I, I prayed with every fiber within my being. And I was so confused when not only did it not stop, but in many ways it got worse. Hmm. Hmm. Well, let's begin at the beginning. One of the things that um, you encourage your readers to do um, is call it what it is. And that can be perhaps the most challenging first step when you are the victim of abuse. Yes, very much so. Because, you know, my, what I like to tell people is until we call it what it is, we're going to call it what it's not. So we'll call it, like I said earlier, we'll call it a conflict resolution problem or a communication. That's a, that's a very typical one, a communication problem. And or there's a lot of misunderstanding behind abuse itself where people think it's an, a, a problem with anger. And that is absolutely not true. Abuse is not about anger. Now, can the person look angry or be acting angry or be feeling angry? Yes. But it's not driven by anger. Abuse is driven by entitlement, primarily entitlement and lack of empathy. So until we begin to educate ourselves 
regarding what abuse is and what it's not, and we begin to call it by its proper name, we're not going to respond in a way that's truly going to affect change within ourselves, meaning the person who's being victimized, because Mm -hmm. we have no power over getting the abuser to stop. They have to choose that for themselves. Now, tell us a little bit about your story and how uh, what it took for you to to call it what it was to begin uh, moving in the right direction. Right. Well, in the introduction of my book, I entitle it uh, Something Broke Inside Me. Mm-hmm. And in that particular um, situation, we were getting ready for an evening uh, engagement where we were some of the featured speakers. And Ben was kind of just dilly-dallying and getting ready, and I was getting very nervous because I didn't want to be late. And so I, I was asking him, you know, are you getting ready? Please get ready. It was kind of the typical banter that we would have. And he continued to lay across the bed, not ready at all to walk out the door. And Ben could go from zero to 100 quick. And as I continued to say, we're going to be late, he came. We were in the bedroom, and I was actually in the bathroom of our of the master bedroom. And I was on the toilet, and he grabbed my head. And he grabbed my skull and he drove his thumbs into my eye sockets. Mm. And so for several days, I my vision uh, was going in and out, kind of just blurry. And my my the sides of my head were just bruised. And, you know, I was actually talking to my best friend. I refer to her as Chelsea in the book. Yesterday, uh, she came over to visit and she was she's reading the book. And she said, I remember like yesterday when that happened to you and how petrified she was and how scared I was that my vision had been permanently altered. Of course, I said nothing at the time to anyone other than to her. So um, that was a breaking point for me because a few days later, Ben had approached me and as often would be the case, he would want to um, have physical intimacy with me. And knowing that, that that I'm a very affectionate person, and that's one of my love languages, it was something that kind of drew me back into the cycle of abuse over and over again, year after year. And that particular time, I just, I told him, I said, I can't, I just can't. And he said, why not? And I said, because something broke inside me, meaning emotionally, my will to fight for the marriage, to save the marriage, to help him change all those things that, that victims of uh, intimate partner violence often struggle with those thoughts. It just snapped and I just, I didn't have it in me anymore. Mm. And that was the turning point. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book today, Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship from Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Ramona. Her book is titled Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship from Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. You write about not just surviving abuse, but actually becoming an overcomer. And that's perhaps a message for some of our listeners who might find themselves still in the abuse category, imagining possible for themselves. Where do you begin um, if you... uh, if you are in an abusive relationship, where do you suggest our listeners and your readers begin to walk away from uh, that abusive uh, situation to become an overcomer? Well, in my book, I lay out the, ste- the steps that I took and that I now use when I work with uh, domestic violence survivors. But the first step is going to be to tell your story. I call it break the silence. And that is the scariest step for most people. But until we do that, we're going to stay in that cycle of abuse, and that's going to continue to perpetuate. So I encourage people to seek out a safe person that they can begin to, even if it's just a morsel of their story, that they can begin to share. Then I strongly encourage them to find a counselor who's trained specifically to work with abuse survivors and who understand the complexity of this issue. Um, and then to start to, to use the, the proper terminology to, to no longer be minimizing it or rationalizing it by calling it anything than what it is. And then to continue to educate themselves to be properly diagnosed regarding PTSD because often people that have go through this type of trauma, they have bona fide PTSD and so that needs to be properly treated. And then I encourage people to avoid the shortcuts. For me, Georgine, it was, you know, I, silly as this may sound, I really would throw myself into cleaning my house or exercising or, you know, just trying to be as perfect as I could possibly be, anything to sort of numb out or distract myself from feeling. Because it's very important that people realize that when they call it what it is, often what will set in is grief because there's a loss. Mm-hmm. You know, when people get married and they say, I do, they don't say, I do to say, I don't. And so when they come to that place where they recognize and, and they give it the proper name, that sense that this is not as I, as I hoped or thought it would be leads to grief and grieving takes time. That's not, it's not a, like a straight distance between two points. It's very messy. And so that's why having the support of a trained counselor and or a support group that's dealing with this issue is so, so vital because we heal best in community. What support can loved ones give to abuse victims? Great question. In my opinion, the greatest thing that a person, a loved one can do is believe them. And in my case, I come from a family of no divorce. And so I was the first that even consider, even use the word. And so initially, you know, it was very difficult for for my family and and namely my parents to really accept it. And plus, I kept it secret for many years. We lived, you know, a couple thousand miles away and Mm -hmm. I wasn't telling anyone. But really just to believe their story and to offer them tangible support, like if they need help and um, filing a restraining order, go with them to court. Just sit with them. You, you know, you don't have to be an attorney or understand all those details. Just be with them. 
help watch the kids if they have children, encourage them to go back and get education if, if that's the case and, and they want to pursue that, you know, offer tangible uh, way resources as well as just a listening ear. What kind of work needs to be done before we can identify our culture as one in which this kind of abuse is not uh, tolerated, it's not condoned? Uh, and what role does faith play in that that hope for uh, process and goal? Well, what I always encourage people of faith is, you know, the last thing someone going through this needs is someone to preach at them or judge them. Or to ask them a question like, a common question is, why don't you just leave? Which I find very interesting that the word just is in front of the word leave, because Mm -hmm. abusers do not allow themselves to be left easily. It's much easier to separate from an emotionally well person than it is an abuser, because they are, are having to relinquish the power and control, which they don't want to do. So, And to recognize how dangerous it is. When someone attempts to leave, the actual actually the fatality rate goes up by 75 percent when someone uh, attempts to leave. And so if you are that family member or that friend, encourage that person to um, develop a safety plan on my website, drramona.com. I have an entire page dedicated to uh, creating a healthy and safe safety plan. So there's there's so much. I mean, I, we could, I could talk to you all day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I hope we're wetting the appetites of those who want to learn more to pick up the book and also to connect with you online. Let's talk for a moment about forgiveness, what it is and what it is not. As as women, men and women of faith, it's important that we understand this, particularly in the context of abuse. Right. Well, first of all, I always spend time with my clients working through and discussing with them what forgiveness is not. It's not a magic wand. It's not forgetting the whole idea of forgive and forget. I tell people, I hope you never forget I, because I don't want you to repeat the cycle. Um, it is not accepting abuse. It does not, this is a huge one, it does not require reconciliation because reconciliation requires two people. Mm-hmm. It requires trust to be in place. It requires that the abuser uh, does some deep, deep work, which one to three percent of abusers actually do that deep work to truly change. So the likelihood of your abusive partner changing is slim to none. I mean, that's just the fact that's hard for people to hear, but that's, that's not my research. There's oodles of research to back what I just said. That particular statistic comes from the Family and Child Abuse Prevention Center. Mm. Now, the subtitle of your book is From Victim to Survivor, and I think people can imagine perhaps getting from that to survivor, but overcomer is another step, and for some, it's a bridge too far. Um, Talk about how one becomes an overcomer from uh, being a survivor. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, living is surviving an abusive relationship. Really living is thriving behind beyond it. So definitely overcomer in my mind is a is a step beyond survivor. There are a lot of people who are survivors who actually, by my definition, are truly overcomers. And there's survivors who are stuck in their healing process who haven't truly actualized the overcomer phase. Mm-hmm. But as an overcomer, you learn to trust your gut. You call it what it is. You lay down your mask. You no longer keep secrets. You learn to love yourself authentically and in a healthy way. You manage what I refer to as super traits, which is 
high loyalty, high tolerance, high relationship investment. Uh, you recognize what red flags are. You don't call them pink, you call them red. You set healthy boundaries, you work through forgiveness, you connect with healthy community. Those are just a few of the things that I talk about in, uh, in regards to becoming and, and growing and healing to that place of an overcomer. Well, you're absolutely right. Our brief conversation certainly does not cover the depth that you cover in your book, Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship. But I would encourage listeners to uh, pick up the book uh, to begin to walk through this process. And they can also connect with you, if you mo- uh, mentioned a moment ago, uh, connect with you online at drramona.com. What do you say to uh, listeners who um, have not yet identified themselves as an abuse victim, but think perhaps I fit into that category? Your final words? My final words is that healing well is not just for a select few. We can all choose intentionally to heal well, but healing well will not happen with time alone. And there is nothing, there is no shame in recognizing that you have been victimized because domestic violence is a crime. And when a crime is committed, there's a victim. So there's no shame in that. So I encourage people to pursue healing well for themselves. What's happened in my life can happen in theirs. Again, the title of the book, Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship, From Victim to Survivor to Overcomer. Dr. Ramona, thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I appreciate the conversation. Again, Dr. Ramona Probasco is the author of Healing Well and Living Free from an Abusive Relationship. The book is published by Ravel. And again, you can connect with Dr. Ramona at her website, drramona.com. So it's sad to me that we have to have this kind of conversation, but from time to time, I think it's healthy to do so. And I hope it might encourage and help some of our listeners today. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, coming up on tomorrow's program, we're going to talk with June Casagranda. How'd I do, James? Casagrande? Casagrande. We're going with that. We'll check it out tomorrow. Anyway, June Casagrande, the joy of syntax. I should probably pronounce it correctly since I'm speaking with someone who's something of a linguist. A simple guide to all the grammar you know. You should know. So I'm looking forward to that conversation. Sort of. I'm a little nervous about it, too. And then on Wednesday, as I mentioned earlier in the program, we're going to host the Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge in the first radiothon we've had here on KPDQ. We've been uh, talking a little bit. In fact, if you missed the uh, five o'clock hour right at the top, I talked a little bit about Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge, who they are and what we're going to be focusing on. I I, uh, would encourage you to take a listen. But we're going to go into great detail on Wednesday as we give you an opportunity to learn more about this ministry that is addressing head-on 
the opioid uh, uh, crisis that we're in, as well as other drug-related uh, addictions. So we are hoping that you will plan to join us on Wednesday as uh, we take the opportunity to help inform our listening audience and give you an opportunity to come alongside an individual who needs uh, the kind of addiction recovery that um, Pacific Northwest Adult and Teen Challenge uh, offer. So that's coming up on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, Katie Reed will be my guest, Made Like Martha. Good news for the woman who gets things done. You know, Martha gets uh, something of a bad rap. Now, she's redeemed later in the story, if you read uh, what the scripture has to say uh, about her after the Lord gives her a mild rebuke about uh, choosing the greater thing. But for those who are more like Martha, you've uh, sort of felt like a second-class citizen, I suppose, if you're uh, someone that is uh, is called to do things and to do them well. So anyway, we're going to talk with Katie Reed about Made Like Martha, good news for women who get things done, which of course doesn't mean that we don't also choose the better part. So that's coming up on Thursday. And then on Friday, we will lighten uh, things up, as is our typical practice. Well, the U.S. Department of Labor's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, these federal titles of agencies are really quite remarkable, they announced a new policy directive on Friday. It focuses on protecting religious freedom. Well, the directive instructs, um, again, uh, the department's Office of Federal Contract Compliance Programs, or OFCCP, staff in all their activities to take into account recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions and White House executive orders that protect religious freedom. Well, the Supreme Court issued rules rulings in 2014 and 2017 and in 2018 that safeguard the broad freedoms and anti-discrimination protections that must be afforded religion uh, religious exercise um, and organizations and individuals uh, undertake under the U.S. Constitution and federal law. Now, it seems like it's uh, simply stating the obvious, but it does need to be stated and restated in the 21st century. The directive refers to cases like Burwell versus Hobby Lobby Stores, Inc., Trinity Lutheran Church versus Polly and Masterpiece uh, Cake Shop, uh, Limited versus uh, Colorado City, uh, rather, Civil Rights Commission, all in which Liberty Council filed amicus briefs at the high court. Well, President uh, Donald Trump has issued executive orders reinforcing the administration's commitment to robust protections for religious li- freedom, uh, as well as ensuring a level playing field for faith-based organizations to compete for federal grants, for contracts, programs, and other funding opportunities. So what they are encouraging this agency to do, this Office of Federal Contract Compliance uh, Programs, or OFCCP, is to uh, include uh, to take into consideration faith-based organizations as they are competing for federal grants, contracts, programs, and other funding oppor- opportunities. Uh, Matt Staver, who's the founder and chairman of Liberty Council, said this, I commend the Trump administration and the Department of Labor for taking a strong stance uh, in this uh, new policy directive to protect the religious freedom of individuals and organizations under federal law um, and the uh, U.S. Constitution. People of faith should not have to set aside their sincerely held religious beliefs to appease others. So this is certainly a movement in the right direction uh, with regard to the First Amendment's protection to the free exercise of religion. So um, this directive uh, will have an impact on religious organizations, individuals, faith-based groups, and so on, who are competing for federal grants, contracts, programs, and other funding opportunities. Well, we covered a lot today. Um, I learned later in the day that the perjury uh, trial for, um, uh, not the perjury trial, the Manafort uh, trial has been uh, wrapped up today. Uh, We had a firing of an FBI agent who was overseeing the Mueller 
uh, investigation, a lot happening. And I hope we're all reminded that uh, despite our political position, whether we're on the right end of the continuum, somewhere in the middle or on the uh, the left end of it, that we all have a common obligation, a common privilege to bring our nation and its leaders before the throne of grace. And God, who is far wiser than any of them and certainly any of us, uh, invites us to come and to lift these leaders up before him. Uh, what happens moving forward, I don't know. Sometimes I'd like to outline, this is what I think should happen, this is where it should go. Sometimes God allows things to happen that are not uh, that appear to be uh, in our worst um, interest. Sometimes things uh, move and progress in a way that we can all recognize, oh, that's a good thing. But what we do know is God has purpose and what he allows is always ultimately um, to accomplish his ultimate purpose. So we need to be praying for the men and women in positions of authority, not only that they'll make good decisions, but that they will have an encounter with Christ if they don't know him, that they would come to faith in him, that they would have a walk uh, that would... Um, survive long beyond their political career, but that would shape their character and their life moving forward as we endeavor to honor Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what uh, what he calls us to do. We need to be praying for others as well. Those we dislike intensely, those we care uh, greatly uh, for, we need to be praying for all of them because ultimately the United States of America will fade and uh, this world as we know it, this time that we're in will fade and we will stand as will they before the Lord of glory. And we need to be praying for them that um, they will make a decision that has an eternal uh, impact. So I hope we'll all take that very um, a privilege, I think is the best word to use. Take it very seriously and spend some time on our knees on behalf of our nation, not just praying our own interests, but praying, Lord, thy will be done. That can be challenging because maybe his will is different from what I've already decided needs to happen. But we always submit to what we pray for to the sovereign will of the loving God. All right, tomorrow on the program, we'll talk with June Casagrande. Yeah, I like that. The Joy of Syntax, a simple guide to all the grammar you know you should know. That's coming up tomorrow on the Georgine Rice Show. I want to thank James Blind for engineering and producing today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.